0: a a brief announcement that I don't think Jim had a few moments ago. Uh, We found that uh, Becky, her sister Becky Hickerson, uh, has been in Erlanger and she was able to go home last night. So continue to remember Becky. Two fine lessons thus far. And uh, I asked Scott uh, last night if he would kind of give me a little note here uh, so that I could introduce him and and, and you know, it, everyone is on such on, uh, such a fine lesson. And I'm I, I was looking at this. I thought, well, they all stayed at Holiday Inn. So got to got to be good. I want to say that uh, what an uh, enjoyable couple we we have with us this morning. Uh, we, we had a good time yesterday evening. Scott Harp is a native of Haleyville, Alabama. He's married to a, a New Zealander, uh, Jeannie Hubbard, 31 years. They have three children, one grandchild with two on the way, two grandchildren on the way. Fantastic. Scott is a graduate of Heritage Christian University. Uh, he operates, as Jim mentioned earlier, a website, the restorationmovement.com. You may want to write that down, restorationmovement.com. He is in his eighth year as minister of Buford, uh, Buford Church of Christ in Metro Atlanta, Georgia, and he teaches in three different schools of preaching. Someone mentioned last night, well, Buford, that's where they made that movie about the sheriff, wasn't it? <laughs> No, that's, that's the sheriff's name. <laughs> we, uh, we also uh, want to mention, at, at, well, we'll mention at the close, but uh, as we dismiss after his lesson, Brother Leslie, uh, Tommy Leslie, will uh, have our closing prayer and also give thanks for the food. And uh, so much looking forward to hearing Scott. And if you will, come, come and teach us.
1: I'll let somebody advance me. Am I doing it right here? Make sure we're on. You'll crank me up. We'll we'll go. We'll move. Thank you so much for the invitation to come and be with you this uh, this morning. I have really been looking forward to the uh, the time that I could come and. And, uh, and spend with you today. I, I appreciate so much the, uh, the good work that these, uh, these men have done this morning. Uh, one of the things that I, I find it a, a great joy as well is to do is to think about and to read about the restoration movement and the good works that people have been done. And I don't know about you this morning, but I have felt like a kid in a candy shop. I've just enjoyed everything I've heard and I've appreciated these things. I felt like I was just kind of walking down memory lane of some of the things that I've studied through the years. And I trust that you have felt that way too. Uh, folks, we are truly standing on the shoulder of giants. I mean, you think about all the work, all the hard work that's been done by so many great people, both men and women, through the, uh, through the course of time, their example, their, their commitment to God, their sacrifice, their sacrifice. It is truly a blessing, and uh, it's an inspiration. It encourages to, encourages us to live better lives, to be more convicted in our, in, in our, uh, our work of God. There is much work to be done. Uh, I'm a part of a group of men, uh, Brother Ansel Jenkins, uh, Brother Sam Hester, and myself, Brother Tom Childers, called Friends of the Restoration. We have a special page on Facebook, That uh, people contribute things to, you can go. uh, If you're familiar with Facebook, you can go on. There are still some good things they do on Facebook, but you can go there and you can click on like, and uh, then uh, then chances are you'll be accepted and you'll come in. And we just contribute. There's just different guys that contribute to things. When I think about the great work of brother uh, some some that aren't with us anymore, like brother Adrian Doran, brother J M Powell, and and uh, Brother B.C. Good Pasture, these men who loved restoration history. We just lost Brother J.E. Choke just a few weeks ago. And you think about the, the great writings that they wrote and all the good work that they did. Can't help but be impressed with the fact that um, we have a great, a great tradition. We have a great past. Well, can they see it though? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see here. I am I'm, I'm looking red here. Are,
0: for, are you set for this? Uh, yeah. the man who set it up had
1: to leave. Oh oh oh. And, uh, okay. Uh,
0: I don't know Peter's gonna try to help us out. Sorry
1: about that. Oh that's all right.
0: We can advance we can advance it and see it up here.
1: Okay. Uh, well I'll just hold it up and say, now y'all look at here. <laughs> uh and be there right there okay all right well let's just persevere with it um and i guess i will come up here and and uh, but now we've lost it up here. oh okay we've
0: lost the signal up there To it i'm so sorry
1: okay Will they, they
0: shut down and fire up again? Is there a teenager here? He can.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think I'm on.
0: I am just going to turn it off, and and
1: it's going to take it a little Well, in the meantime, we'll just go ahead and get started here, and we'll we'll just talk about some of the things that we're wanting to share. Uh, with you this morning, and I'll make reference to some of the things. You may walk around and have a look at some of the things that I have uh, on the screen. We are so blessed in that uh, the scriptures are so clear of, about what God wants us to do when it comes to how to be saved, um, how to conduct ourselves in the worship environment. Um, if if we're wanting to organize New Testament Christianity in our neighborhood. The scriptures are clear, and I think so often it's easy um, because of the, of the using. We kind of perish for using because of the using because we get so used to doing the things that we do that we sometimes forget the fact that historically there was quite a long line and history of effort and struggle and. You know, blood, sweat, and tears type stuff, and in, in effort to a lot of sacrifice, a lot of relationships lost and won as a result of the effort that so many men and women have gone through in order to hold this book up foremost in the mind. You know, when Paul said in Galatians chapter one verse eight and nine, "Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed." He was actually saying some pretty momentous stuff there. He was actually challenging not only the churches of Galatia, but the world with how you're going to approach religion. How are you going to approach relationship with Jesus Christ? And we see historically that, uh, that failure has taken place uh, down through the, the annals of time. There have been efforts uh, in the process of trying to go back and to, uh, and to recreate and, and to reconnect uh, the concept of New Testament Christianity. You can see in the, the Great Reformation uh, of the 1500s, you can see where men made efforts once people had an opportunity to get a copy of this book in their hands, that they looked at it and they read it and they started seeing things in this book that they go, well, you know, I'm not seeing this in the religious practice that I'm involved with. Uh, I can't even find the word Pope in here. And all this, and, and we've got one, you know, and we've got others trying to get into that position. So, uh, you know, there was frustration on the part of people who were trying to get there. And every time someone did, like the Martin Luthers and the uh, the Zwinglies and the John Husses and the, even the John Calvins, uh, you know, these were men who were raised up and they said, look, we've got to go back to the Bible. We've got to go back to the Bible. John Wycliffe, he's English... Uh, Reformer, we got to go back to the Bible and and listen to the things, and that's what got a lot of them in trouble. It got a lot burned at the stake, and a lot because what they were doing is they were standing up and saying, God has a pattern, God has some truth here in this book that you need to know about, and uh, and we need to follow it, and we need to follow it alone because if we do what it says, then we don't have we don't have anything to worry about. We can cut through our opinions, we can cut through, well, this is what uh, Pope Pius X said, and this is what you know, so-and-so said, and, and it, all of a sudden, uh, you, know, you can wade through such a, a great amount of different opinions, scholarly opinions, and you can just go to the back, back to the book and just say, well, this is what Jesus said. Uh, this is what Jesus directed the apostles to reveal. And so, great, great blessings that we have and in, and uh, in what we uh, what we have in the restoration movement because you actually see a development where men, in coming to this country, and founding this country, kind of throwing off the shackles of denominational uh, denominational oppression, and settling here, many people who settled in the wild west like Alabama and Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> Back in those days, they, they, when they settled, oftentimes, you know, they left those established churches in the East, uh, and their hierarchical structures, and all they had was, was their Bible and maybe their creed book, it was, uh, or, or a song book that, they, that they would have. But they would get out there on the Western Reserve and, and, and out in the far flung regions, and, and oftentimes they just had just, just a few people. And so uh, you had people that represented various different faiths, eff- various different uh, uh, religious persuasions, and, and, and they were out there, and, and, and they wanted to worship together, just, just like over here at McMinnville. Uh, they're just south of there in, in a little community called Viola, the old Philadelphia. How many of you have been out in the old Philadelphia meeting house? Look, that thing is so close. You need to go over there and see it. It's a beautiful old place. Um... um Brother uh, uh, Sewell was there. Uh, uh, Jesse Sewell is buried in that old cemetery behind the uh, the church building there and um, And he just did some 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 marvelous work, but that that work was settled around eighteen o five by a group of individuals that uh, came along and said, "You know we represent different uh, religious backgrounds." Um, how can we meet together? How can we worship together? And there was a group of, uh, of brethren or a group of people that were, were there. Some think that they were probably from the O'Kellyite movement over North Carolina. And, uh, and they said, well, I'll tell you what we could do. We could just do what this book says. And if we can find it in this book, then let's do it. And if we can't find it in this book, let's just, let's just leave it out. And people in the community said, well, yeah, that's not a bad idea. And so, they started worshiping together. And to this day, of course, that church, I mean, no one meets there on a regular basis, but it's a landmark of expression that says there is pattern in the New Testament that can be found, that can be followed, that uh, can work if we'll commit ourselves to it. Well, let's see. Let me just look back here a little bit. Huh? okay well let me let me back all the way up to the very beginning because I want to go I want you to get i want you to see my pictures <laughs> i got pictures, man. I put those things on here <laughs> so uh as was mentioned before uh you know, I felt sorry for Brother Rutherford because I mean how do you select uh men and he needed just such a such a capable job, and of course Brother Wesley as well in defining principles that that uh, help us to really know what to do and and, and how to do it. But when you think about some of the work, and I've just got a a few here on on the screen, you think about what they did and kind of what they said and what their life's aim was, and and it can't help but move you to to want to appreciate uh, their sacrifice and want to follow some of their example as well. Now I want to move through some of the points concerning the pattern I don't think that I'm exhaustive here in any way, shape, or fashion in, in focusing on the pattern. I think we do understand what we're talking about when we're talking about pattern. The things we do, we do because we find book, chapter, and verse for it. Uh, and if we don't, we can't find book, chapter, and verse for it from the from the Word of God, from the New Testament. Then we leave it out, kind of like that mentality that I said took place over there um, at uh, near McMinnville. But <clears throat> For instance, divining pattern through frustration with man-made systems—that seems to be something that the early restorers of New Testament Christianity were dealing with. They were frustrated at the fact that there was something lacking from before. You know, we heard about Thomas Campbell and the work that he did, and uh, we, we we see the the efforts that that he that he made in coming out of Presbyterianism, and we can't help but be impressed with his life and his example. We had reference this morning to... Um, to uh, well, I keep going too fast here. I will back up a little. One more. Please. There you go. Uh, we, we referred to the, uh, the comments that he made about speaking where the Bible speaks and remaining silent where it is silent. It was there in the summer of 1809, there and around Washington, Pennsylvania, uh, there that uh, he had worked his way, as we heard so capably, out of, uh, out of Presbyterianism. He had this uh, group of, of people who were good friends of his there, the Christian Association of Washington. Uh, they'd gotten together and they were trying to figure out what to do, what direction uh, to go. And, and I wanted to read to you uh, something that Alexander wrote uh, in the memoirs about his father. And, and, and it's, it's interesting that he wrote these in the memoirs uh, when he was about 73 years old. So just about four or five years before he died in 1866. But this is how he recounted the events surrounding when the, the first time he heard, let's speak where the Bible speaks, uh, or, or where uh, his father had actually said, in one of these meetings, he says, at the residence of Mr. Jacob Alter, he said, a considerable number of brethren being present and having taken it for granted that the Holy Scriptures were all sufficient and, and, uh, and alone sufficient. As the subject matter of faith and rule of conduct, that as the Old Testament was all sufficient for the Old Testament worshipers, so the New Testament scripture, Scriptures were all sufficient for the New Testament worshipers. Therefore, we conclude that where the Holy Scriptures speak, we speak, and where they are silent, we are silent. Now remember, he's 73 years old, and he's reflecting back on events that took place in the summer, early summer of 1809. And what he enjoins there is really more of a process that even goes beyond the speak where the Bible speaks and remain silent where the Bible is silent. I think probably Robert Richardson, who wrote the memoirs of Alexander Campbell just uh, like two or three years after he died, after Campbell died, probably did a better job in recounting the events that took place. But what I I want you to see is the fact that Campbell actually, he says, makes this distinction. Old Testament was all sufficient for the Old Testament worshipers and the New Testament uh, scriptures were all sufficient for the New Testament worshipers. Listen. When he said, "We'll speak where the Bible speaks and remain silent where the Bible is silent," and in 1809, they had not established in the process of their development as a movement the idea that Old Testament spe- uh, people follow the Old Testament and New, people, New Testament people, uh, worshippers follow the New Testament. In fact, it wasn't until October in or rather uh, August in 1816, during. Um, Alexander, Alexander Campbell's almost spontaneous uh, sermon on the law at the annual meeting of the Redstone Association, Baptist Association that he presented a, some concepts that just blew the minds of the Baptist people in that meeting because on that occasion he expressed some of the concepts that you see that he summarizes many, many, many years later. And that is the idea that there is a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In reality, what was taking place as far as the pattern is concerned, there was no pattern. I mean, people wanted to be Bible Christians. They wanted to follow the Bible. That seemed to be something that was um, common among the reformers of their day. But the thing about it is they found authority just as much over here in this part of the Bible as they found over here in this part of the Bible. And so it wasn't until that great sermon on the law that Campbell really challenges people to realize that, you know, Moses had his law and those who were under that law followed him, but the law was weak and that it could not take away sins. You get over into the New Testament, a different testament, the testament that is of Christ, and then you see a new pattern, a new following uh, approach for the people of God. And so where we find our authority for how we do the things we do, we're going to find it over here. Now, he wasn't discounting over here this information. You know, Paul said in Romans 15, 4, these are written for our learning, that we through patience and the comfort of the Scripture might have hope. But what Campbell was saying here, we find the authority from the New Testament. So, what you see, and this is one of the struggles we have as historians, kind of putting everything in its place at the right time, and his thought, and Campbell Alexander Campbell was doing this in re- retrospect as he was trying to remember the events at 73 years old of things that were going back in, early in the summer of, of 1809. And so he was simply saying where they were getting to was the fact that, and, uh, and here was the point, here, we're going to speak where the Bible speaks and remain silent where the Bible is silent. Well, there was a very staunch... Um, seceder in the crowd by the name of Andrew Monroe he was a, uh, the postman of, Can, uh, of the town of Canonsburg just a little south of Bethany and he was there on that occasion and he heard the, the idea of speaking where the Bible speaks and remaining silent where the Bible is silent and he said uh, well there goes infant baptism well I'll tell you what it's like a hush in the crowd it was almost like everybody got sucker punched because see that was the way That they all thought. And it was almost like you could see Thomas Campbell thinking about it. And he said, well, he says, if we can't find infant baptism in the scriptures, then we'll have to not do it. Well, I mean, it said there were some people there that just kind of walked off into the woods and cried like babies. Because what they were looking at is turning their backs on everything they knew to follow this pattern and this pattern alone. So it was a big deal for them to say this on this occasion, and it was a challenge. Now later on that summer, he writes this, this great document, Declaration and Address, in that he lays out more thoroughly the idea we're going to do Bible things in Bible ways. We're going to be called by Bible names. We're going we're to use Bible names. We're going to follow the book and the book alone. We're going to let it be our creed. Yes, our creed. Whatever this says, that's it. But then you see a development over a period of time. It's not till 1816 that you finally see the development where we're looking not just at the whole Bible, but we're seeing the New Testament as being that area of the Bible that we look at as being authoritative over any other part of the scriptures. And when we're studying today, so oftentimes if I'm talking to somebody about needing to obey the gospel, what are we going to do? We're going to do that very thing. We're going to express, you know, we're not under the Ten Commandments. We're under the law of Christ. And we follow his teachings no no matter what. Defining pattern through reformatory movements was impossible. Later, Campbell, uh, in in 1861, released a volume called... uh, antecedents, or Christian baptism, antecedents and consequence. And what he did is he tried to explain the movement of the restoration in this way. He said, look, we were looking at the way religious, the religious world was in our day, and we looked at the old movements of our day or, or that had preceded us, and we weren't coming up with what we needed to find in the way of truth. And so he says, now you have to remember, this was written in 1861, so count back about 300 years, he's going to talk about A Reformation of Popery, which is obviously a reference to the Catholic Church, was attempted in Europe full three centuries ago, so 1876. about 1500 is what he's referring to. It ended in a Protestant hierarchy. Did you hear that? hierarchy? In other words, it sounded a whole lot, or it began to look like, and it became kind of pretty much what they'd left. Uh, in Protestant religion back in those days, in swarms of dissenters. Protestantism has been reformed into Presbyterianism, that into Congregationalism, that into Baptistism, etc., etc. Methodism has attempted to reform all, but has reformed itself into many forms of Wesleyanism. None of these has begun uh, at the right place. You see that? None of these has begun at the right place. All of them retain in their bosom, in their ecclesiastical organization, worship, doctrines, and observances, various relics of popery. They are, at best, but a reformation of popery. In other words, all they've done is just reform the the Catholic Church. But he says uh, they are, at best, uh, 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 but a reformation of popery and only reformations in part. He said the doctrines and traditions of men yet impair the power and progress of the gospel in their hands. This gospel is the power of God into salvation. That's what Paul said Romans 1 verse 16. What could, the only thing that could keep this book or keep this message from being able to reach its greatest uh, limits was when men come in and weigh in on how we ought to apply it. And that's what he's saying was taking place in denominationalism during that day. And therefore as communities, they are not distinguished by the ancient piety, uh, the zeal, and the humanity, nor for their efforts in success in evangelizing the world or at home uh, abroad. So he says, from a full survey of the premises of ecclesiastical history, in other words, we've taken a look at the whole history of, of Reformation and, 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 and what men have tried to do, and what we've come up with this, he says, of the human uh, creeds and the sects, and especially from the profound uh, uh, regard for the wisdom and knowledge that guided and the spirit that inspired the apostles of, of Jesus Christ and that qualified them to reveal his will, we have proposed an evangelical reformation, or rather a return to the faith in manners anciently delivered to the saints, a restoration of original Christianity both in theory and practice. What we've proposed is, look, we looked at what was going on in Europe and we said, that's just not Christianity. That's not New Testament Christianity. Uh, uh, They haven't haven't recaptured the evangelistic fervor. They haven't recaptured the order. They haven't recaptured the concept of pattern that was in the New Testament. All they've done is really they've just remade the wheel. And that's what Reformation was. And that's why he proposed, and they were proposing the concept of restoration. You can't can't reform something broken and come up with something that's complete. I think Brother Wesley brought that out in a a very, very practical way uh, this morning. So the reformatory ways, they weren't going to do it. That wasn't the way we were going to be able to do it. But determining the extent pattern plays in carrying out the gospel the Great Commission was going to be a challenge as well. Now, Because you've got some things in the gospel uh, challenge that uh, falls into the area of what God has specifically said we must do, and that is to carry the gospel to the whole world. But this word G-O here, <laughs> boy, people have played with that word. And they've done some really amazing things uh, and some things that are not in keeping with, uh, with God's word. So we persevere. I don't know if you've ever heard of Benjamin Franklin Hall, B.F. Hall. He was a most interesting uh, character. He lived around the time of Alexander Campbell and some of the others and he was more probably of the influence uh, of, uh, of Barton W. Stone and had a great, great deal of respect for him. But B.F. Hall, uh, we've just in the last few years been able to find a copy of, a handwritten copy of his own autobiography. It was in the library at Texas Christian University. I had an opportunity to see it, hold it, to read it, and uh, I finally begged and pleaded for them to uh, let us scan it into a PDF format <laughs> so that we can go back and look at it. But I want to show you some of the things that he was saying concerning just the message of the gospel, trying to, trying to solidify. Now, at the point that he's going to talk about, baptism obviously was something that they, that they were doing. Uh, Barton Stone, of course, had been uh, immersed in 1807, as was mentioned earlier. Uh, Campbell in 1812 uh, had, had been immersed with uh, his wife and his parents. Uh, but yet there was still something not quite right. There were some things that were frustrated. So let me just try to read this this uh, cursive writing here. And, and um, he said, During the fall of 1825, the winter of 1826, or 2526, he says, I was perplexed and troubled about our preaching and the results. But for the life of me, I could not find out where the mistake lay. I became convinced that, uh, there was a, a great wrong somewhere, but could not find when it was or wherein it, it consisted in this state of perplexity. He said, I started for Kentucky in the spring of 1826. Now, he was down in northern Alabama, and he was kind of heading back because he was, he was, he was frustrated at what kind of result he was seeing when people would come down to the, to the prayer uh, altar, the prayer bench, and they weren't receiving any kind of relief. So he said, on my way, he said, I stopped at the house of a brother Guest on Line Creek on the line between Tennessee and Kentucky. And it was late in the afternoon, and I was fatigued, having traveled uh, hard uh, all day. And brother Guest took my horse, and I walked into the house. Sister Guest had gone to see a sick neighbor, and so uh, uh, I was in the house. Uh, uh, or, or So no one was in the house when I, when I entered. He says, before taking my seat, I looked around for a book. He says, my eye caught sight of a little bookcase in one corner of the house. He says, I rose and walked up to it. My eyes soon rested upon a book uh, with debate on baptism printed on the back. He says, I found it to be the debate between Alexander Campbell and William L. McCalla. Now, McCalla was a Presbyterian, and this debate was in Washington, Kentucky in October of 1823. They said William L. McCalla Uh, was really scorching those immersers down there. And uh, it said that he was like smoking their eyes and thorns in their sides uh, with the kind of success he was having among Vardaman, Jeremiah Vardaman and some of the other uh, Baptist preachers down there. And so they were saying, who can we get to debate? Who can withstand this man? Well, Campbell said he would debate him. And so he worked on the planning of the debate uh, along with his father, and Walter Scott. Now I want you to notice here, um, he says, um, "He said I had heard it was uh, it was published, but had never seen it till then. I knew it would not have uh, have time. To, uh, I would not have time to read it then, and so I began turning over the leaves. Mr. Campbell's speech, in which he introduced the design of baptism, uh, arrested my na- uh, my nature. He says I began to read it with fixed attention." Uh, the interest deepened as I uh, as I proceeded. The lights began to dawn. May uh, 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 nay, rather, it flashed upon my mind, and uh, uh, ere I had concluded the arguments, I was a full convert to the teaching of baptism for remission of sins. I sprang to my feet in ecstasy and cried out, "Eureka! Eureka! I have found it! I have found it! And I had found it." I had found the keystone in the gospel arch, which had been uh, set aside and ignored by the builders. I had found the long-lost link in the chain of gospel obedience. I was converted anew thoroughly. So here's a man, you know, this is uh, what, spring of 1826. Now, what you need to realize, Alexander Campbell taught this in his debate, but he taught it to try to win the debate. He didn't actually apply it in his in his in his own preaching. In fact, it wasn't until November of 1827 before somebody in the Campbell movement was baptized for the remission of sin. That was at the hands of Walter Scott. In fact, it was Walter Scott that came up with the idea that baptism was not only immersion, as the Presbyterians, you know, were were against, but it was for, as Acts 2:38 says, for the remission of sins. And so he, you know, he was amazed. Uh, by it. So he said, yeah, that'd work in a good debate right there. And so he used it. But yet, as, uh, as I said before, it took quite a few years before it, uh, it really began, began to gel. Now, what you need to know about B.F. Hall, B.F. Hall took his learning. And this is spring of 1826. In the, ne- the next fall, he goes down into Lauderdale County. And he's preaching in a meeting in Lauderdale County on Cypress Creek. And a young man, actually three or four young men that later were gospel preachers, but one young man you'll know responded to the invitation, was one of the first in America baptized for the remission of sins. His name was Talbert Fanning, founder of the Gospel Advocate, one of the great, great debaters, preachers. Uh, but B.F. Hall, you know, it was like, wow, I, I see what's missing here. I see what we're, we're, what we're not doing. So this was an effort to understand. You know, it's like they, they had part of the pattern. They had the immersion right, but they weren't doing it. They didn't understand why they were doing it. I mean, you know, they still had so many outside influences. And so finally when he realizes, man, he goes around and he starts saying, you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And I'm telling you, people began responding uh, in a wonderful, w- w- wonderful way. So... Great things were happening. I'd like to encourage you. In fact, I will buy you. (laughs) Okay, brainstorming brainstorming about how you go about, you know, how do you convert the world? How do, How do you do things in Bible ways? How do you do things according to the pattern? How can you do things that, you know, maybe... You know, you want to keep within the will of God and do things the way God wants you to do it, but you, got, you, know, you want to be careful with it. Now, Talbert Fanning was kind of living in that stage where he was trying to do this, this very thing. He had started a little school there in, in, uh, in uh, Nashville, Tennessee called Franklin College in 1845. And he was thinking, man, I need some students and I need some money. And so he thought, let's have a meeting. We'll bring people from all over the state, and we'll have them come in, representing from all over the state. And he said, we'll talk about how we can evangelize, how we can build the church up, and how we can help education in this state. And so he had motives. But I want you to read what he wrote in, the, in his paper called The Christian Review. He says, the ordinances of the gospel and the Christian uh, government are settled questions. Yet the children of God are required to exercise their worldly wisdom as to the manner of employing their resources to advance the cause of God. Essentially what he was saying here is we've got the word go into all the world and preach the gospel. How are we going to figure out how to go? Well, Jesus went, maybe he walked and maybe Paul went on a donkey. How are we going to go? And so let's all get together and let's talk about how to go. Because we're going to use our worldly wisdom now (laughs) what you you might and you don't want to miss this is the fact this is 1847 two years later one such worldly wise organization came together in cincinnati ohio by the name of the american christian missionary society essentially what they did is we've got worldly wisdom we're going to put our heads together we're going to figure out how to evangelize the world and of course what was wrong with the American Christian Missionary Society was the fact that not only did they evangelize, but they became a ruling organization in the church. And they began controlling churches. And uh, I don't know if y'all use this in this part of Tennessee, but they began dunning churches. They sent them bills. You're going to help this program. You're going to help this association to evangelize the world. Well, people very, very quickly saw that uh, that was something to get out of. Now what you need to know is in 1849 guess who was on board number one in line? In fact was one of the vice presidents, Talbert Fanning. But when he started seeing what happened once worldly wisdom got together and, and thought about how to do things and how to really get the message out there man you talking about spinning, buddy he got out of that thing as fast as he possibly could and started writing in the Advocate now I'm not a part of that and we don't need to be a part of that. And so, <clears throat> you know, uh, later on, he <laughs> I'd like for you to, to see another thing that he wrote um, uh, later. Talbert Fanner wrote in the, wrote in the Gospel Avenue of a planned preachers and elders meeting in 1856. And he says, now listen to the, uh, to the, to the right, right." He says, let this be the first meeting since 1842 for the purpose of the disciples consulting together the divine oracles in reference to God's ways and means to save the lost. So you can see a difference of attitude there. In other words, we're not going to put our worldly minds together to decide how we're going to take the gospel. We're going to put the divine cause, the scriptures, to the test, and it will dictate how we, uh, we follow the will of God. And so you see a development of... Um, Of change in his thinking. Later, uh, Fanning later explained that consultation meetings was uh, distinguished by its lack of formal resolutions and constitutions. He says, it is in this unique setting, witnessing a shift in emphasis and arrangement, that Fanning made his oft quoted statement about his opposition to church cooperation, what he refers to seems to be the formally organized constitutions and and authoritative resolutions. Essentially what he's saying here is he became a chief proponent of, look, brethren, we can get together, we can uh, listen to the word of God proclaimed, we can worship together, but as far as these meetings, when we get together, we're not going to set authority for the church, we're not going to say this is what Church of Christ is going to do. And uh, I don't know about you, but I remember the last several years visiting Fried Hardeman's lectureship. One of the first thing old David Light does when he gets up there, he says, "Now, brethren, you need to understand. You just hear him, can't you? Right? Well, you need to understand we're not a governing authority on what goes on in churches of Christ. Uh, we're just here to discuss the Word of God, and we're here to talk about these very and uh, and and promote it." Well, you know, Fanning had learned over a period of time that developing pattern was not on the basis of worldly wisdom, but on what the Word of God dictated. And uh, that was going to be his approach and his way of thinking. What biblical pattern forces uh, in restoration preaching? This is, a, I guess, a, a point that uh, brings a challenge to all of us. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, we're to preach the truth in love. One of the things about living in our society especially is that when you proclaim the word of God, he that believes and is baptized should be saved and he that believes not should be damned. If you say that to some people, how are people going to respond to it? How dare he? I, that's his opinion. Who in the world does he think he is? coming and telling me I'm going to be condemned. Uh, and it's frustrating as a preacher, uh, preaching the Word of God on the first day of the week and trying to separate this wonderful message of the gospel that by its nature is condemning if you don't follow it, if you don't obey the gospel of Jesus. It's man's only way for salvation. But yet, if we, we don't come across in a loving fashion then sometimes we get condemned or we're the ones that are taken out <laughs> and and the tar beaten out of us. And so it is a frustration, uh, frustrating process. Well, I want you to know it's not a new thing. This was something that was going on back in the day. Raccoon John Smith was uh, always uh, in, a, in a scuffle here and there. And John Augustus Williams, his biographer, uh, makes this reference on the occasion. Uh, where it says that his wife, Nancy, often remonstrated with him on the frequency and severity of his in and uh, anim adversions on the doctrines of Christ, or doctrines of, uh, doctrines of the creeds, in other words, she would often talk to him about all the fights he seemed to get in when he would go to these various different denominations and preach the truth. It was like he was always in debate. But I love his answer here to his wife. He said, uh, Nancy said he to her one day, holding up before her a glass of water. Can I fill this tumbler with wine till I have first emptied it of water? He says, neither can I get the truth into the minds and the hearts of people until I get first disabused them of error. In other words... I can preach the truth. I can preach the truth in love. I've got to be a spokesman for the Word of God. There is a pattern here, and I've got to preach the the, the pattern that Jesus gives me. But I am going to have to ultimately deal with the things that separate me from other people. And I'm going to try to do it as loving as, uh, a way as I possibly can, but I'm going to have to deal with the problem. And that... Kind of turns people off. I guess that's one of the reasons why we don't have as many debates today. Because we're living in a society people don't want to hear uh, someone disagree with, with, with one another. Although in the past, people, many people have been won to Christ as a result of the debates. And so patterns sometimes, and if you're defending the pattern, sometimes is, is, is a challenge. Restoration preaching calls for distinctive truth. Man can preach the gospel of Jesus all his life. Tell the stories of God's word for years and years and years and never ever step on a toe. We see it on TV all the time. People tell good stories, you know. Right out of the Bible and you go, wow, that was great. You ever hear one of those on the radio? You're riding down the road, you listen to it and and it's like, man, this guy must be from the church until you get right down to the end. (laughs) And then you start hearing him talk, and you go, oh, oh my, my, my. Uh, what's going on here? Well, Brother V.P. Black, great, great gospel preacher, loved him so much, and I know all, many of you did. But Brother Black at Freed Hardman Lectures in 1982, he said the church in the first century was successful in evangelizing the world because it stood against sin. He said, if the church is sin-infested, what message do we have to carry to the world? The world says, physician, heal thyself. The only time that some preachers are ever definite in their teaching is when they're condemning those who are positive in condemning sin in and out of the church. The church is an exalted institution. It is the light of the world. The Lord tells us to be light, uh, to let light, uh, to let our light shine. God will not bless a church that is filled with sin. He must. We must remember that it is God that uh, gives the increase. First Corinthians chapter three in verse 6 so i think the simple message is this look you can preach the new testament but if you never preach distinctive new testament teaching then you're missing what god has in mind if you're not preaching what god says distinctively about what one must do to be saved then you're missing the point. If you're not speaking distinctively about God's pattern as it has to do with how we worship God, then you're missing the point. Some of our brethren, some of our our, our Christian friends, I think are falling off on the deep end because they're, they're getting away from the idea of being able to find the New Testament as being authoritative in the way that they worship God in that when they read in the Word of God that God says to sing, He doesn't have to fill that book with all the all the reasons otherwise. He doesn't have to give us all. All He has to do is what He wants us to do. And we can come away with an exalted sense of thanksgiving just to have the honor of being a part of God's worship plan by doing things God's way. And so He admonished that. He encouraged that in His preaching. And He encouraged until His dying day, distinctive Gospel preaching. And um, it's a challenge. And uh, not ever, everybody wants to hear it. I got one more point, I think. And uh, the lesson. Oh, there we are. Restoration patterns. Specialization or preaching preaching of the gospel. One of the things that you see so often with people is that They want to find their niche. They want to find what they can do. And and, and God has blessed the church with so much talent. And there's so many good things that people are doing for the cause of Christ. And praise be to God that we have talented people doing great things. But you know something? We will never, ever, ever get beyond the basic pattern of responsibility that lies upon the shoulders of every child of God. And that is to preach the gospel. Well, I preach the gospel well it's always been a challenge. The restoration movement is filled with examples of people who had a challenge. James Alexander Harding he entered Bethany College just after Alexander Campbell died. He came out educated he went off into Kentucky and he started a school there and he ran that school for a number of years and uh, for those those period of years he didn 't hardly do any preaching, but boy, he was a successful teacher he was a, i mean he was the the head of his school and just doing, doing very well. But on one occasion, it's interesting, Harding makes this reference in his book, Eyes of Jehovah. In the spring of 1875, uh, J. Harding was asked to preach a protracted meeting. He said he had no evangelistic sermons. And the brother responded, why, you have been brought up in the church all your life. You have also attended Bethany College and have your degree. You've been preaching uh, since you were 19. If you can't hold a meeting, you ought to be shot. Now shut your mouth, get on your horse and come out and hold that meeting. (laughs) You know, we we can have talents in a lot of different areas and we can be extremely good in all those areas and those are all good. But if we're not doing the thing that makes us different, what do we really have? If I'm worshiping in a building where I... I'm taking the Lord's Supper just like they did in the first century. And, and we're praying just like they did. and We're preaching just like and We're meeting on the first day of the week and we're doing everything according to the Word of God but yet we've not capitalized that aspect of the pattern that is integral to what we are as Christians. Then What do we really have? Age is never an excuse. We have a responsibility to speak the good words of Jesus and his message because in that, lives are going to be changed. Don't we think that people ought to deserve to enjoy the pattern that we've come to behold and love and are thankful for in, uh, in our lives? Certainly, we're thankful for the good work that has been done. Now, here are you, that's not the rest of the story. Between 1876 and 1893, 17 years, he preached. He preached two times a day, three on Sunday, from Canada to Florida, from New York to Mexico. He held over 300 evangelistic meetings that lasted three to 10 weeks. He had responses, uh, had great responses. In one eight week meeting on Foster Street in Nashville, he had 123 editions. In South Nashville, he preached. He had 300 editions. He held 17 meetings in Nashville and 13 in Detroit. I think what the guy said to him kind of worked. You ought to be shy. I love that. <laughs> but he they got the message. And he went out there and he did. You know, that was a man who grew up in a home. His father was a gospel preacher. And he had the great men like uh, Barton Stone and others that had come to his house. And he had grown up with that. And he was out there doing great things. But yet, was he doing what needed to be done? Folks, there are great things we can do for the cause of Christ and thanks be to God that we're striving to do it in Georgia and you're trying to do it here in southern Tennessee. And God bless you continually in the efforts and the work that you're doing. I know God's going to bless you because you're holding firm and with all of your heart the Word of God. You're holding up this banner before the world and saying we can follow the pattern of the New Testament and we can be Christians like you read about in the New Testament. And sometimes and in some way, somehow you say it long enough loud enough by your life people are going to hear it and their lives are going to be changed forever thank you so much for letting jenny and i come and be with you today and thank you fellas for that great rich feast